Fabulous secret powers were revealed to me. The day I held aloft my magic sword and said, by the power of Grayskull, I have the power! <laughs> Nobody joined me in on that? Come on, I'm sure lots of you have. Uh, you gotta love a trip down memory lane though. And um, you know, these days I do have one of the greatest powers that anyone can have. The power to give or take away screen time. <laughs> Hudson, can you tidy up your room, please? Oh, but Dada is so boring. Sounds like you don't want screen time. Right away, Dada. Hadessa, finish your food. Oh, but I'm full, Dada. Mm, looks like you don't want screen time tomorrow. Mm, nom, 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 nom. I'm a benevolent dictator, aren't I, Hudson? You better say yes or you'll miss out on screen time tomorrow. <laughs> now, I make light of the issue, but the issue of power is also very real. Right across the world, we see countries in shambles and people struggling because individuals are vying for or holding on to power. But the issue is in our families as well. Husbands over wives, wives over husbands, children and parents. You know, those of you that have dedicated kids, the power struggle will be very real if it isn't already. Come to, and there you go, right? The kids are like, hey, I think I'm in charge now, mom and dad, right? You've got that power struggle. And let's not even start talking about in-laws, am I right? <laughs> if your in-laws are here, just... Mm. Um, <laughs> We see power dynamic in our schools, within groups and cliques, and you're either in or you're not cool enough, and there's always some kid who seems to be making the decisions. We see power in the business world, leaders abusing their position of power to take advantage of those in less power, whether that's sexually or working them long hours, getting them to do things they shouldn't be doing. I had a boss who abused his power by turning up to work whenever he wanted to, and then making those of us that turned up on time stay late just because he turned up late. But he had the power to do that. He was the boss. We also sadly see this in churches. We know full well of stories of abuse, but there are stories of manipulation, whether that is for financial gain, to drive through an agenda. We have pastors using their spiritual position to get the congregation to give them more money. Pastors who get people to pray, pay to pray. If you give me more money, I will pray for you. And if you give me even more, you get up to the top of the prayer list. Pastors that should be shepherding their flock are actually fleecing them. See what I did there? Shepherding, fleecing? No? Terrible. <laughs> Thank you. How do we go from He-Man to that list? But the point is, this is a serious topic, and it affects all of us. Now, you might say, well, I'm none of those things that you've mentioned, and that may well be, but I would suggest two things. That power is a spectrum that we are all on and that we are all struggling with. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus calls us to live in a world where power, prominence, and rights are forever pulling on our hearts and minds. And what we're going to do is first dive into the passage that we're going to look at, and then we're going to look at some application as well. So let's dive into the text for today. Now, we usually put text up on the screen, but I'm not going to do that. My job as a preacher is not to be engaging, although that helps. My job as a preacher is to help you engage with God's Word. 
And so what I'd like for you to do, you've all got your phones if you don't have your Bibles. I'd love for you to get your phones out. Most of you should have a Bible app on there. If you don't, now's a good time to download it. Also, if you are using your phones, put it on Do Not Disturb so that, you know, the last, most interesting thing or whatever doesn't disturb you or some messages saying, oh my gosh, is this guy so boring? Uh, doesn't, you know, trouble you at all. So look, look, open your phones and if you are next to somebody who doesn't have a phone out or can't read, can I encourage you to share uh, your screen with them? So you definitely want to put it on Do Not Disturb. Um, so... But we're turning to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 20 to 28. I'll read these for you, but read along with me. I want you to read in whatever version you're comfortable. I'm using the ESV. I want, the reason I want you to get your phones out is I want you to look at verses before, verses after. As I speak, if there's a verse that comes to mind, feel free to look for it, etc. All right, engage with God's Word. Verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the turn heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, but not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Now, there are a few things I want us to notice in this passage. Firstly, in the passage before, if you read that, Jesus tells his disciples about the fact that he's about to be killed and he's going to rise again. In verse 17 tells us that this took place on the way to Jerusalem. And it says he took the disciples aside and he told them this. In verse 20 now, suddenly the mother of James and John appear. So clearly this is sometime later, and as we read in verse 24 of the passage, when the disciples heard about it, the other 10 disciples heard about it. So they were obviously somewhere else. This indicates they weren't present at the time. So clearly some time passes between the previous passage and our passage. But it probably took place on the same journey towards Jerusalem, and Salome, who was the mother of James and John, was traveling with them. If you look at verse 20, 21, Salome comes and says, these two sons of mine, let them sit at the right hand and the left hand of of you in your kingdom. It sounds like Jewish mothers are very much like Indian mothers, right? Sir, please take my son on your cricket team. Sir, he's, he's a very good bowler. Make him captain also 
because you know, hey, show him your right arm. He has a very strong right arm, sir. Please show, show him, butter. Show him. No, please take him. <laughs> in fact, I had something similar happen to me with my dad, who is Indian. He wanted me to earn some extra cash while I was at Bible college, and so he asked someone who owned a modeling agency <laughs> to use me as a model, and this is what I looked like at the time. <laughs> Two things to note. No surprise, my modeling career never took off. <laughs> they do say never say never, you never know. Uh, and secondly, this was when Priscilla first knew me, so miracles do happen. <laughs> anyway, we can take that slide off now, because otherwise nobody will concentrate. Uh, <laughs> for Salome and the disciples, this wasn't about extra cash or being on a sports captain. This was a big issue. As big an issue as was possible for a Jew at the time. It was about freedom of oppre from oppression. We have to understand the idea of kingdom for a Jew. The Jews were living under Roman rule, and they had lived under foreign rule for nearly uh, for 300 out of 400 years. And this was not what God had intended. They were meant to be their own nation under God's rule. In fact, before Jesus, a number of rebels had tried to overthrow the Romans. But for the Jew, their emancipation was prophesied, and therefore they knew it would happen. Those who followed Jesus had started to see that he might well be the person that would save them from Roman rule. The establishment of the kingdom of God is the story of the Jews, and it is our story too. Jesus himself quotes ancient scripture when he talks about that, scripture that the Jews would have held on to during the darkest of times. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, or scroll, as you might be doing. Um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. That's just after Ezekiel. If you find Ezekiel, you find Daniel. And verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now Jesus quotes this later in Matthew chapter 24 verse 30 and the Jews would have known this. This is the kind of verse that they would have held on to through their oppression. But the disciples, as earnest as they were, they hadn't quite seen that Jesus wasn't about overthrowing the Roman rulers but he was about overthrowing the powers and principalities that ruled over the Romans and rule over every single one of us. Salome and her boys were taking the punt. If Jesus did succeed and prophecy was on their side, then being close to him meant being in a significant place of power in his kingdom. Can you imagine 300 out of the last 400 years of being under foreign rule and now you are second in command to the one who has led them to freedom, to the reestablishment of the temple, the restoration of the presence of God, the freedom to worship as God fully intended. Can you imagine what significance that would give you? Where that would place you in society? 
What influence would you would have? What adulation, what power, prominence, and rights would be yours? Instead of being fishermen, you will be owners of the whole fleet of fishing boats. In fact, you could probably even buy the lake itself. But Salome didn't understand that the kingdom Jesus was establishing was very, very different. And neither did James and John. Now, as we carry on in verse 22, back in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus realizes that they don't know what they're asking for, even though he just literally told them. And he says to them, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, many commentators connect this with the words that Jesus spoke in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, Father, take this cup away from me. And some will suggest that this is the cup of God's wrath. Now, I don't think that's the case because Jesus says to James and John, you will drink my cup, which if we follow the logic of the commentators, Jesus is saying to James and John that you will endure the wrath of God. But clearly, if Jesus took the full wrath of God, then why would John and James also have to suffer the wrath of God? So either the cup Jesus talks about in Gethsemane isn't about the wrath of God, or there's no connection between this reference and that in Gethsemane. I think it's more likely Jesus sort of saying, can you walk in my shoes? It's just a term, an idiom that was used in those days to say, can you follow in my footsteps, essentially. Verse 24, the disciples hear about this incident and they get upset because, of course, they want the position. They want the power. They want the adulation. They want to be in the front of line. And Jesus realizes, verse 25, and like us parents, Jesus says, okay, this is a teachable moment. So he gathers these whining, fight, fighting children, aka disciples, and to, him, and to him and has a teachable moment. And just as we're doing, Jesus makes a cultural contrast. He calls their attention to the Gentile rulers. In this instance, he taught, he, they will immediately think about their oppressors. Now it's interesting, if you look at verse 25, it's interesting, Jesus says, he calls to them and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Now that's fascinating because the disciples of the Jews were actually under oppression from these Gentile rulers, from the Romans. So why doesn't Jesus say, you know how they lord it over us? and they exercise authority over us. Why does he say them? Wouldn't that have made more sense to the disciples if he said, you know how the Jew, they lord it over us? They go, wouldn't that connect more? But actually, to lord it over and exercise authority over their own people is the contrast. You remember, maybe you know about the time when Paul was arrested in the book of Acts, and he says, why are you arresting me? I'm a Roman citizen. And so they have to let him go. You see, to lord it over a people group you have subjugated, the Jews, is expected. But to lord it and abuse power over your own people is a whole nother thing. And that's why Jesus uses that contrast. That's why he says them rather than us. You see, one moment, Jesus and John are saying, and then he says, not so with you. You're not going to do that. This is the significant contrast. One moment, James and John are asking to be the right and left of Jesus. Take your mind to those scenes in movies where you have the king or queen on their throne and you've got the advisors on either side of them. 
And every so often the advisor will come in and whisper something or the king will lean over and say, what do you think? That's where John, James and John want to be. But Jesus says instead they are to be servants and slaves. In the Greek, the words that are used, doulos, literally means kicks up dust by running errands. It's a funny word. Here, Jesus throws a deadly combination. Those of you boxing, his left body shot saying they must be a servant. And then his right body shot that knocks the wind out of his disciples charges them to be a slave. The word slave, the reason why it's there, it enhances on the word servant. You see, in the Roman days, a slave had little to no rights. You belonged to another. You served your master. That was it. Jesus is saying, instead of being next to me in pride of place, prominence, position, power, freedom to go wherever in the kingdom, to be revered or rights to being served, you need to be like a servant or a slave who is hidden from view, no rights, and whose sole purpose in life is to run errands, do the master's bidding with no title, no ownership, whose name very few people know. How many of us want to sign up for that? And then Jesus places himself as the example to them, even as the son of man. Notice the connection with the verses we read in Daniel 7. It says the son of man. That's why Jesus is using that term. He says, yes, I am the son of man. I am the one bringing the kingdom, but it's a very different kingdom. He says, came not to be served, but to serve. And then he throws this final right hook, but give his life as a ransom for many. So what does this mean for us? Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't pursue promotions, positions, or influence? In short, the answer is no. Not because I can't stomach the idea of Christians all having to be servants, but actually, even from within the passage, we can see what Jesus is arguing against. He's arguing against, he isn't arguing against authority because he himself said he's under authority. He isn't arguing against position or influence. In these verses, Jesus says, lord it over them, exercise authority over them. Essentially, he's talking about abuse or making the most of their positions of power. The question isn't about whether we should be in positions of power, prominence, or influence, but rather what we do when we are in them. Because whatever we do in life, we are in positions of power. Do we pursue those positions for our own benefit or do we pursue them in service of others? And if those positions come about for us, how do we use them to serve, to serve, and to serve? So I want us to take us to a few places of application now. The place where we most often jostle for position or power is in the home, first of all. And I want to start by speaking to husbands and fathers because we are in a place of power and authority as are wives and mothers, of course. I want to clarify to husbands that being a provider isn't the same as being a servant. Many husbands will say, but I provide for my family. I work hard, I go to work, I spend long hours there. That's my service to the family. And it is a good service, 
But there's a difference between being a provider and being a server. Because if you are the provider, you have power. Because you have the power to withhold what you are providing. But if you are a server, you have given up your power. So don't please hold on to that to say, well, I provide and that's all you need to do. God is calling you to be a servant, not just a provider. Serve your kids by spending time with them. I know it's not easy. I have two kids that love my time and attention and on so many occasions, I've not wanted to and I've said no because I was too tired. But honestly, as you will know, the times when you've said yes and you've given in and you've stirred up their energy and you've gone and spent time with your kids actually has re-energized you and you've enjoyed that time and they've come away loved. Husbands, serve your wife. One of the things that I learned after 17 years of marriage, wish I'd learned it earlier, so for those of you that are less married, have been married for fewer years, thinking about getting married, I don't know what less married means, but hey, there we go. Um, <laughs> Is marriage a spectrum? Um, yeah. <laughs> so earlier in the year, we, had, uh, we were renting a property uh, out in Poole, and we had a patch of grass on the, uh, the front of the property and the back of the property, and it had uh, overgrown. I mean, the grass was knee-high, and it was heading towards being a David Attenborough documentary. You know, that's the kind of garden we had in place. And uh, Priscilla was very particular, and all our neighbors went past our house because of where it was positioned on the road. And so Priscilla kept saying to me, uh, kept suggesting that I should do something with the gardens. A month went past, I said, yes, dear, yes, dear, oh, yeah. And then another month, uh, yes, dear, oh, no, I'll do it, I'll do it, sort it out. Should I get somebody in? To, no, no, I'll do it. I'm oh, man. I'll do it. So I texted a neighbor, said, can I borrow your lawnmower? That bought me another month of actually not having to do anything. But there came this moment where suddenly I realized that actually this phrase came to mind. Well, if it's important to her, it's got to be important to me because she is important to me. And as soon as I came into that, that really changed for me. If you're here, and if this is the one thing you take away, families, husbands especially, if you take this away. Now, if you're sitting with your spouse, your partner, or your children, can I encourage you to turn to each other, look each other in the eye, and say, if it's important to you, it's important to me, because you're important to me. And if you're not, now, and for those of you that aren't, if you are there, let's say this together. What's up on the slide? If it's important to them, it's important to me because they are important to me. Now, please note, this isn't a tool for you to use against each other. <laughs> well, Peter said, it's important to me. It has to be important to you. Now, go and buy me that 67 carat diamond ring. <laughs> That's not what I'm expecting to hear. Honey, I need to watch this match. It's important to me. Get me my beer. 
I don't know why it's only Americans that do that, but. <laughs> you see, as soon as I understood that having a tidyish garden was important to my wife, it became important to me, and I got the garden sorted. If keeping a tidy house is important to your wife, then it needs to be important to you. If putting things back where you got them, if putting the toilet seat down, if coming home on time to a sit-down meal, if taking the bins out, washing up, sorting out the laundry, reading to the kids, not watching TV late into the night is important to your wife, then make it important to you because she is important to you. And finally, if talking, oh, oh I didn't say talking. Not talking, I can do the others, but don't say talking. No, if talking openly and honestly is important to your wife, it needs to be important to you. Now, I've mentioned a lot of things, and some of you husbands may be patting yourselves on the back thinking, yeah, I do that, I do that, I do that, oh, and that. But recently we were doing a pre-parental prep, I can't even say that, pre-parental prep for a couple. And one of the first exercises we got them to do was a roles and responsibilities assessment. We asked them to list all the jobs that it takes to run a family, managing the house, the home, the food, the finances, social calendar, kids, extracurricular activities, school applications, etc., car, and so on. And then we asked them to put the name of the person who carried the mental load uh, down uh, for each of those down. And although the husband does carry quite a bit, he told us later that doing that exercise helped him to realize actually just how much of the mental load his wife carries in the home. And that really challenged him. And I encourage you and challenge you to do that yourselves. You see, many of us modern husbands are happy to do different jobs. We're happy to take the bins out when we've been reminded nine times. We're happy to say, what do you want me to do next when you have guests coming round? And the lovely, sweet, caring husband will say, what do you need me to do? You know what your wife needs you to do? Do you know what will really help? You can help by thinking about what you need to do. I'm a fair, uh, oh, just, you know. My wife going, practice what you preach. Um, <laughs> you see, jokes aside, a good slave carried the mental load. A good slave thought ahead. The things were in front of the master before the master had to even ask. That was the sign of a good servant and a good slave. And God is calling us to be. When you say, what do you need me to do? What is that question saying? It's saying, I can't be bothered to think, to use my brain. So I'm gonna dump the responsibility of thinking on, on you, dear wife. You tell me, because although this is the 35th time we've had guests around, I still don't know what to do. <laughs> think, carry the mental load, husbands. I know that work is tiring and it requires fine brain power. Fine, take half an hour to yourself when you're done with work. As much as you'd like to think that she did, your wife didn't just marry you for your body. <laughs> she wants your brain as well. Now some of you might say, but this is Western culture. In our culture, it is shameful for a man to be seen to do woman's work. And first of all, I wanna value and honor the diversity of cultures that we have in this church. It's incredible. 
I come from a culture that is very patriarchal and division of labor is very clear. While we were in India, which is where we're from, there was a time when Hadassah was less than a year old and Hudson was four when Priscilla went for a week-long work trip. She told our cook that she was going away and I would be looking after the kids and the cook was very confused. She said, so his mother is not coming? No. Your mother is not coming? No. So who will look after the kids? Uh, he will. So I know that there are different approaches and cultures and my question to you is not whether it's your culture, it's whether is it kingdom culture? Does your culture align with the passage here today? If not, then this passage is as much for a Western audience as it is for any culture that is here this morning. Counter-cultural Jesus. And some husbands are even thinking of Ephesians 5 and saying, but aren't I supposed to be the head of the family? How can I be the servant? How can I be the slave? I'm supposed to be the head of the family. Jesus is the head of the church. And he did what for the church? He died. He gave up his life for the church. So being head of the family means what? Giving up your life for them. Still want to be the head of family? <laughs> now for some of the wives here, I need to balance this out a little bit. I want to just say that Jesus is not calling you to force your husband to give up his rights. Some of you may have taken on the responsibility of making your husband a slave to the family and have emasculated him. That is not you trying to make him Christ-like, but that is you simply taking over the power dynamic and it makes you the opposite of what Christ has called you to be, which is also a servant and slave. You are servants to each other. There is only one master in the house and that is Jesus. And we are servants and slaves to one another. A word to parents. One of the most common ways the parents have a power struggle is by undermining the other parent in front of the children. If you overrule what the other parent has just said in front of the kids, what are you saying? You're saying, I have the power. You don't need to listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I make all the decisions around here. Or vice versa. I know men who totally undermine their wives when their wives are trying a particular parenting method. That's a power dynamic and kids notice it. They learn from it, they exaggerate it, they use it to their own advantage and suddenly two people who should be working together are now going further and further apart. So in a home, can I encourage you all, out-serve each other. Out-serve each other. And I know that things will get dramatically better whatever your current situation. Just a couple of other things for application. In the office, for those of you who are in businesses or run businesses or are managers or manage teams, do you have a servant attitude towards your staff? The concept of servant leadership is well known these days, but application is always a challenge. When you delegate, are you doing so to help them to grow or just to get stuff off your plate? When you engage with your clients, are you looking to maximize profits or looking to serve them as best as possible? And very often, those two things, funny enough, go hand in hand. 
Some of you might say, but what if my culture, work culture, is like that? What if everybody is playing politics and backstabbing to get more power, position, and prominence? What should I do? I would say, come back to this passage. The Gentiles lord it over each other and exercise authority, but not so with you. You continue to serve by doing your best with your client, with your team at heart, and see how God opens doors for you. See what you can do to change the culture for your team. But if the culture is particularly toxic, then I would say find an organization that is more aligned to your values, even if that means a reduction in pay. You will be happier and your family will be happier too. For the young people that sit here with us, those of you that are in school or college, what is the culture around power or influence or being cool? How are you serving those around you? to be the friend to the weirdo, the, cl- the new classmate. Everybody, it's all about influencers. It's all about people like KSI, I Show Speed, Anna McNulty, Jordan Matters. Some of you are going, what on earth is he talking about? But you wanna be an influencer. Influence your friends to serve, to be kind to the weirdo, to think about what help the teacher might want and need for setting up class or what help your parents might need for when the guests are arriving. Many of you are growing up with the idea that you have rights. I have the right to make my own decisions, to wear what I want, hang out with whoever I want, go wherever. Now I'd question some of those rights, but are you fighting for your rights or are you fulfilling your responsibilities? Whether that be at school or at home, the Gentiles would exercise their rights, but Jesus is calling you and I to fulfill our responsibilities. And that is a responsibility of serving our families, our friends, and our teachers. This is horrible. It goes totally against the me first culture because it's all about you first. I wanna just commend, we have so many young people, youth that serve here at CityGate. Can we give them a round of applause? There's so many. And finally, in church, we have many people who leave churches because they haven't been given the prominence or position that they're expecting. Where's my car parking space? Why isn't it dedicated for me? You know I tithe more than anybody else. Or you might say, they don't value my gift of leading worship or playing guitar or preaching, so I'm leaving. Or they they won't let me start this ministry. They won't let me lead that ministry. The pastor doesn't come and visit me every week or he takes too long to reply to my messages. That's the culture of the world, the culture that Jesus spoke against. In Matthew 23, verse one to seven, Jesus talks about how the Pharisees wanted these positions of influence and power. If you're frustrated in church, Jesus would challenge you to check your serving heart. Are you seeking to serve, to be a servant to the church and those around you? Are you willing to join the setup and put away team? Join the refreshments, the kids, the welcome? Are you serving in church? There are so many teams that are desperate need of servers. If you aren't serving the body of Christ, the one for whom Jesus died, then I think you'll struggle to serve anywhere else. If you aren't serving in any ministry, even if you aren't pursuing position, power, or prominence, Don't get sucked into the consumer culture of the world, consuming here, but not serving. 
So please, can I encourage you to respond to the passage before us today and go to the back, the sign-up desk at the back and just say, where can I serve? And if they say to you, we've got space on set up and put away, and you say, yeah, but I've got a gift of preaching. I should be up on the stage. I should be on the platform. Well, God calls you to serve faithfully. Serve with the right heart and the right attitude, and he will open the doors in good time. He calls you to be faithful in the small before he opens up the bigger. The kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, greatness is not based on your super abilities, but on your servant attitude. In the kingdom of God, greatness is not about your or my super abilities, but about our servant attitude. Now we've talked a lot about the problem and I've made some suggestions of how we can do better. However, this issue isn't quite so simple because what is the root cause of the need for power? I might say, well, the antidote to power is to serve, but actually there's something else. The root cause is identity and purpose. If we are unsure, if we are accepted and secure and significant, something all of us crave and need in our lives, then we will look for that acceptance, security, and significance in all sorts of different places. And one of the most obvious places is in power. The other two big ones are what we looked at over the last couple of weeks, sex and money. You see, in the very first sin, if we had time, we would turn to Genesis 3 verse 4, but in the very first sin, what the serpent challenged identity. He goes to, the, the, uh, goes to Eve and says, did God really say, you will actually, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. And you will have what? The power of knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve were already like God. They were made in his image. They were given his breath. But she had forgotten her own identity and said, yeah, actually, I want to be like God, thinking, but forgetting that she already was. We contrast that with Jesus in John chapter 13, Verses one to five, this is where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And we all know that story well. And it says, Jesus, but verse three is the particular one where it says, knowing where he had come from and where he was going, Jesus took off his outer robe and washed his disciples' feet. You see, it was in that place of secure identity that Jesus was able to let go of his power and become a servant. We have to understand our identity. Jesus was totally secure in his identity, which is why he is the, although he is the most powerful person that has ever walked this earth, he is the only one for whom power never corrupted him because he was completely secure in his identity and purpose. So we need to understand that. There are some of you who are in retirement years and we're almost done. A time when power dynamic starts to shift quite considerably. Things you used to be able to do, you can't do anymore. You feel your level of significance and influence has decreased. Your position of society is now more hidden than ever and you start to question your purpose and it can be a lonely time. I don't wanna belittle this stage in life and I can't imagine what that's like, although I have two elderly parents. But can I encourage you and remind you that no matter your stage in life, you are accepted, you are secure, and you are 
significant. The great thing about what Jesus has said to us in this passage today is that your greatness is not based on a position of significance, but a posture of serving. Your greatness is not based on a position of significance, but a posture of serving. Whatever age you are, you are able to serve in some way or the other. It may not be the way you used to serve. It may not be how you even like to serve. But again, Jesus told us to be servants and slaves. And I expect many of us, many slaves do jobs they don't want to do. The concern for influence and power in the world is overcome by a clarity of identity and purpose in Christ. The concern for influence and power in the world is overcome by clarity in your identity and purpose in Christ. Because being a servant in the kingdom brings the significance that truly satisfied. Just wanna finish that here. You see, this idea of serving isn't just a good idea or something we should do. Can you imagine a world where we are all trying to outserve each other rather than outdo each other? This world would turn the this would turn the world upside down. It would turn marriages around, families, schools, churches, nations. This is the kind of kingdom Jesus came to establish. This is the kind of kingdom he died to establish. This is the kingdom we get to bring into existence in our homes, in our schools, in our businesses, in our places of influence. What an incredible world it would be if we chose to outserve each other instead of outdoing each other. No more children bickering about who went on the screen first. No more politics in the boardroom. No more husbands forcing their wives to do things they don't want to do in the bedroom. No more wives undermining their husbands. No more lonely or bullied children in schools. No more cowboy contractors. No more backstabbing teenagers. No more delayed payments on invoices. No more ministry teams in churches desperate for service. No more prophets only seeking profits. Might I say, even no more poverty and no more trafficking, the list goes on. We have not just been given a calling, but we have been given a deep kingdom establishing responsibility to be torchbearers, flag carriers for this kingdom, a kingdom of servants and slaves, a kingdom that is radically different from the culture out there. Will you... Rise up by laying down your rights. Will you be the one that is proud to say, I am a servant? Will you be someone who out of clarity of your identity and purpose in Christ makes every effort to outserve other people? To be friends to the weirdos, to serve your wife, to serve your husband, your parents, your teachers, your clients, your team. You and I can and will bring about the kingdom of God in increasing measure everywhere we go by being people who push against the culture that says greatness is having a position of significance and instead we bring a culture that says greatness is a posture of serving. Let's pray. As I pray, I'd just love for us just to respond. If you wanna respond just where you are and just put your hand up. That's just a physical sign. Nobody's taking notes or making count, but just a physical sign between you and God to say, Lord, I wanna be more of a servant.
Just let the Spirit work in our hearts this morning. So if that's you, if you wanna just respond in any way, if you know you need to serve your family, your friends, whatever it might be. God, we wanna thank you that we are secure, accepted and significant in you. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave the great example, that you laid down your life to ransom many of us. And Lord, you've called us to be countercultural, to be completely different, to be actively intentional, to be servers and servants and slaves to those around us. Because that is gonna change this world. I pray that you give us the grace, the humility, the security, and the ability to do that in the coming week and the weeks ahead that your kingdom might be established wherever we are and that your name may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.